You guys may be seated. If you feel everything kind of leaning this way, it's because we're kind of unbalanced this morning. So, uh, you know, just uh, just lean back into it and we'll, uh, we'll be all right. And uh, if you find me looking this way more, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but it's just what, what you do as a, as a speaker sometimes. Uh, last week, we, we looked at a passage together in Revelation chapter 2. It was a, Jesus addressing the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And we looked at the, the letter that he wrote to the Ephesian church. And I just want to reread this to you this morning and kind of tie together what we talked about last week and what we'll talk about this week and what we're going to come back and talk about next week. And um, so you kind of get a, a context for where we're going. To the church in Ephesus, it was a, it's a vibrant church. It was a church that was doing a lot of neat stuff, okay? But, but this is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He says to the angel uh, of the church in Ephesus, right, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So these are the words of Jesus, okay? I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, so these guys are doing good stuff. They're working hard. They're persevering under a great load. He says, I know that you can't tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those that claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. And so you've got this discernment going. You recognize when somebody speaks something and says that it's true, but it's not really true. You're able to pick up on that and to, to know that. Um, he says, you, you have persevered and you've endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. This is a church that just, that nothing could stop. These guys were doing great things. And yet in verse 4 he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Here's, here's the, the, the real warning from, from this passage that you and I can be busy doing good things. We can be moral we can be upright, we can be doctrinally pure, we can, we can know right from wrong, and, and, and we can quote the Bible, and we can do all those kinds of things, and still have departed from our first love. Still not love Jesus more than we love everything else. We can still have idols in our life, we can still have things that we would value more than we value the Lord, and, and so it's a warning to us here that, that these things can, can take the place of the Lord if we're not careful. And so he says, I want you to, number one, remember the height from which you've fallen. We tried to do that last week, to remember what we had in Christ. The second thing he says is to repent. And the third thing is to do the things you did at first. So, so what he's trying to say here is I want you to remember what you had. I want you to repent. I want you to turn back to me and make me your first love. And then I want you to rekindle, to, to restart, to, to renew this love that we share together. And so last week we talked about remembering. This week I want us to talk about what it means to repent and what that process of repentance, repentance looks like and, and how that we do it. Uh, and so when we talk about this, we're, we're talking about it not being a one-time event, but an ongoing process. We as believers don't just need to repent once. But we need to be in a, in a heart of repentance all the time. Anytime we, we step outside of God's will, we need to have the, the, the heart that wants to repent and to come back to God. 
We need to have a heart that wants to turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? I have sinned, whether it's a, what the world would consider as a great big sin or whether it's what the world would consider, oh, it's just a little bitty white lie. We ought to have something inside of us. And I believe as believers, the, the Holy Spirit is the, the agent that, that's going to do what we talk about today. But we ought to have the, the ability to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to turn back to God immediately. And so what we're going to talk about today is this, this invitation to grace and how we get from our sinful to God's grace and, and what that process looks like and what God uses to bring us there. Um, so it's not a one-time event, but it's this ongoing process. And, and, and this world, which is, is led by Satan, uh, this world system that we live in, which is not from the Lord, uh, is, it, it appeals to our flesh and it, it seeks to pull us away from the Lord and to help us to depart from our first love. Uh, and these subtle shifts which may seem innocent at, at the moment, can take us far, far from God. Those in the space industry will tell you that, that, that when they get ready to launch a, a space shuttle or a rocket or anything to the moon, that a one to two degree departure from the path would make them miss the whole moon. Just a small fractional shift can cause them to miss the, the moon. And I want to say to you today that just a small, subtle compromise, a small shift away from our first love can cause us to miss all that God has in store for us. It's those subtle shifts that lead to major crises. Subtle shifts that that seem innocent at the moment that, that, that throw us into the midst of a crisis if we're not careful. Our failures don't usually start with a major shift away from God but just small compromises that, that, that's one step away and then a second step away and a third step away. And before you know it, you're, you're far away from the Lord. You ever gone to the beach and you, you set out on a little raft and you go out to the raft and, and, and you float out a hundred foot or so from the, the shoreline and you lay back on the raft and you look up and all of a sudden you don't know where you're at? That current has just kind of gradually moved you and you look up and you're three hotels down from where you started? You ever had that happen? It's just a, a subtle thing that the current just kind of carries you that way. And, and I think if we are not intentional to pursue the Lord, intentional to, 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 to listen to him as he convicts us and to come back to him, that, that one day we're going to wake up and realize that we are very far from where we started, very far from where we were. And that's what he's saying to the church of Ephesus, is that you guys were red hot in love with me, and you started doing some things right, and, and man, you've held on, and you've done all these things, but, but your heart has just drifted. And he's calling them to open their eyes and to see where they are and to return back to him. These small compromises over time can lead us far from God if they're not caught and they're not corrected. And this is why, and this is going to sound really strange, okay, but follow me. I think that you and I should be very thankful for God's convicting power. You say, Rob, conviction is not fun. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, it, it's miserable when we are under conviction. But we as believers should be so thankful that God loves us enough to convict us. That God loves us enough to, to call us back to himself. That God loves us enough not to just let us drift far, far, far from him. 
But that when he sees us drifting, that his Holy Spirit convicts us and and calls us back. We ought to be thankful for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us do not enjoy the experience of feeling the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But, But let me say this to you today, and you may even want to write this down. There's not many things that I say that are worth writing down. This may be one of those things. And it may not be. You, you judge for yourself. But I, I think that God's conviction is actually an invitation to God's grace. I think God's conviction is an invitation to experience God's grace. And if I can understand conviction as his invitation to come home, then all of a sudden conviction loses that bitter edge. And it becomes a sweet thing. So I step out of line and the Holy Spirit convicts me. And I, instead of resisting him and, and doing all the things that we tend to do to minimize our sin and all that, instead of that, when, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict me at that moment, if I see that as his invitation to come back, to repent and to return to him, then conviction becomes a sweet thing and not a bitter thing. It's an invitation to experience his grace, to experience his forgiveness. And that's for all who will respond. Sometimes we forget what we forfeit when we dabble in sin. Sometimes we forget what it, what it cost us. And there was an old saying that I was taught as a teenager, and it's stuck in my mind all these years. But, but it goes like this. It says, sin takes you farther than you want to go. And it keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you more than you want to pay. Sin is, is like that. It, 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 it takes you where you don't want to go. It, it keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you more than you want to pay. One of the greatest things that sin does to harm us, guys, is that it robs us of the life that God intends for us to experience. It, 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 it robs us of the life that we're supposed to have in fellowship with God, but it also robs us of these deep relationships that we are to have with one another. Sin causes us to resist the God that created us and loves us. In, in Matthew, uh, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, and he's looking over Jerusalem as, as he's preparing to, to go to the cross. And he looks down on Jerusalem, and this is what Jesus said. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Matthew 23, verse 37 and 38. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he says, your house is left to you desolate. How often, Jesus says, I wanted to, to, to bring you back under my wings. I wanted to, to, to restore this relationship. I wanted to offer you protection, to offer you provision, to offer you all that you need. I wanted to gather you the way that, that a hen would gather her chicks, but you would have nothing to do with that. Sin causes us to resist the Lord. It disrupts our relationship with God. And in unrepentance, when we sin... It, it continues that disruption. In fact, it kind of exasperates the disruption that we have with the Lord. But genuine repentance restores that relationship and, and, and reignites that first love that we have for Christ. I want us to take just a few minutes this morning and kind of explore uh, some of the, the things that sin does to us if it's not dealt with. 
I think one of the most harmful things, in fact, one of the most unloving things that God could do is to let us sin and do nothing. To let us sin and God just kind of stuff it and make a note of it and say, one day, buddy, I'm getting even with you. One day. And just let us go and go and go and go and go and never call us back, never convict us through the Holy Spirit. Just let us go and just pile up our sins and then finally get so mad he just just squashes us. I think that would be a, a terrible thing for God to do. But instead, God calls us back. So let's look at some of the things that that sin does for us, what scripture says. I I think if we're honest, and I think we need to be honest with each other, there's a positive side to sin. It's it's not positive, but there is what we perceive to be an upside to sin, and that is this, that sin gratifies my flesh. Feels good while I'm doing it. Somebody ticks me off, and I fire back at them, and man, that felt good. I told them what I thought. Somebody hurts me and I want to get even. And man, that feels good to, to see them hurt the way that I hurt. We, it, it gratifies our flesh for a very short time. It, it, it does it for just a moment. Which is why we need more and more sin. If that's what we're looking to, to fulfill us. Just a little bit's not enough. It gratifies our flesh. Galatians chapter 5 is, is a passage that, that talks about the, the desires of the flesh and gratifying the desires of the flesh. In Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17, he, he's talking about the difference between living by the Spirit of God and, and living by the flesh. And he says, I say to you, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. So, so sin gratifies that sinful nature. It, it, it brings gratification to our sinful nature. But the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, so that they are in conflict with each other, so that you're not doing what you want to do. So sin gratifies our flesh, and I think for us to deny that there's some kind of a a good feeling at times to to sin is to to not be fair. If, If sin was not gratifying, then it wouldn't be tempting. If it didn't offer us some kind of pleasure, then we wouldn't pursue it. But, but sin does gratify our, our flesh. It, it gives us kicks, but then it comes with a kick back. Another thing that sin does, and this is not so good, is that sin causes us to fear God and to hide from God. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? Every evening in the cool of the day, God would come and would walk with them. Perfect fellowship, perfect union, the best that it could be. He was their God and and they were his people and, and the fellowship was sweet and then they sinned. You remember what they did when they sinned? They ran and hid. It says that they recognized that they were naked. They were exposed. Their, their sin had exposed them. And then they ran and they hid. God hadn't changed. He came back to the garden. 
And, and guys, if you could grab this as the gospel back in Genesis, God pursued them in their sin. Just like he pursues you and I in our sin. And so they, 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 they ran and they hid because they feared God. Where are you? We're over here, God. Well, why are you hiding? We were afraid. Sin causes us to fear God and to hide from him. Our fellowship with God is replaced by fear. And it's not long before the blessing of God is replaced with blame. Remember when God asked Adam and Eve, what, what is this? Well, God, that woman that you gave me, there's blame. And then he turned to Eve, and Eve says, well, that serpent you put in the garden, he deceived me. The blessing turns to blame. The fellowship turns to fear. And what we used to have that was so heartfelt now becomes this hiddenness from God. And so we've got to be careful. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read you this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is, for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If we continue to choose sin over God, fear, fear sets in. And, and, and sin begins to grip our hearts. And, and then there's this distance between us and God. And it's, it's no different than in our relationships with one another. When we sin against somebody else, it's, it, it, we don't want to rush into their presence and be confronted with our sin. We don't want to come back into their presence and, and, and be afraid of being exposed. And so we hide from others just like we hide from God. And distance replaces that intimate relationship that we had. Another thing that sin does, Scripture says, is that it puts this distance between us and God. Adam and Eve walked intimately with God, and now they find themselves hiding Isaiah chapter 59. Listen to what he says in the first four verses of this, of this chapter. Isaiah is writing and he says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities, your sin, has separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and they speak lies and they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Sin separates us from God and then we have to go into this, this, this mode of pretense that everything's right. I don't know what's wrong. I, I, you know, I, I haven't done anything bad or, or what I did wasn't that bad and, and we go into this mode of, of pretense and, and, and beginning to, to look at things and going, man, what, what's the deal here and I don't understand why it's that way and, and so if we're not careful, sin can separate us from the intimacy that we've had with God and it's not a deficiency on God's part. 
It's ours. He says, the, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it can't save you. His ear is not so dull that he can't hear you. But your sins have taken you from God. They've separated you from God. You, your sins have hidden God's face from you so that he will not hear. The, the, the responsibility, the fault lies with us, not with him. And so he says, be careful of that. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, again, in the book of Hebrews, he says, we need to be careful that we do not drift away. Listen to what this says. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a child of God, at the moment that you become a believer, God places his Holy Spirit within you. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit, part of the responsibility of the Holy Spirit is that when we step outside of God's will, his job and his responsibility, which he does perfectly, is to convict us. That's his job. To convict us and to call us back to this relationship with God. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart. It's not an audible voice necessarily that we hear, but it's this, this, this voice that God speaks to our heart. And he says, hey, Rob, you, you crossed the line there, buddy. You need to repent and you need to come back. And what he's saying is we need to be more careful about the things that we hear so we do not drift away. Because here's what happens. If I take a step outside of God's will and the Spirit of God convicts me of that sin and I don't repent, it's not going to be long before I take another step and another step and another step. And I'm going to drift from the presence of God. And that's how my sin separates me from the presence of God and from, from Him. And so sin can, can put distance between us and God. We can drift away if we are not careful. Another thing that sin does is that it blinds our eyes it dulls our hearts, and it clouds our thinking. It, it blinds our eyes, it dulls our hearing, and it clouds our thinking. In Romans chapter 1, it's a great passage that talks about this slippery slope of sin. And how if we are not dealing with sin very quickly in our lives, it's not going to be long till we find ourselves just sliding off the edge. In, in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, listen to what he says. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, God's made his presence known to us. But although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. In other words, they weren't living for him, bringing him glory. Nor do they give thanks to God, even when God convicted them. There was no, there was no thanks, there was no, no response to God. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. They began to exchange this beautiful thing they could have with God for something substandard, for something much less. It blinds our eyes. It dulls our hearts. It clouds our thinking. In, in verse 28 there in Romans chapter 1, he says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. It, it clouds our thinking, and it's not long before we can't see clear. We can't hear clear. It, you know, you, you've heard of these people, and you, you probably have met a few that you, you look at them, you go, do you not have a conscience? 
How do you continually do that again and again and again and again and brag about it? Do you not have a conscience? Do you not feel conviction? Do you, do you not sense the, the Spirit of God telling you that that's off limits and that that's what you're supposed to do? And that doesn't happen overnight. That's a gradual dulling of conviction, dulling of our conscience that leads us that way. It's what leads to the next thing that sin does, which is to harden our hearts. Sin can harden our hearts to, to where it just becomes more and more crusty. And that heart that used to beat for the Lord now just doesn't respond. In Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, he says, Do you show contempt for the, the riches of God's kindness and his tolerance and his patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He goes on in this passage uh, to say this. Look, he says uh, his, his, his wrath will be revealed and, and God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, in other words, they continue in sin, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. So he's warning us that sin can harden our hearts, that it can deceive us and and, and take us far from where God wants us to be. Back in in Hebrews chapter 3, another passage that talks about this hardening of the heart. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Our hearts can grow hard if sin is not dealt with. And finally, I would just point out this morning, that one sin always leads to another sin. Remember as a kid when you were growing up and you'd tell a lie and your mom and dad would tell you, son, if you tell one lie, you're going to tell another lie to cover that lie and another lie to cover that lie and another lie. And, and before long, you don't remember what the true story was. The best thing you can do is to tell the truth in the beginning and stick with the truth. And then you don't have to wonder about what your lies were and how those all fit together so your story doesn't unravel. Well, one sin tends to lead to more sins. And, and back in Romans, when he's talking about the slippery slope of sin, in, in Romans 1, uh, he starts off by talking about these guys who, who just at first just, just started by trying to suppress the truth early on in Romans chapter 1. By the time we get to the end of Romans chapter 1 in verses 28 and following, we see that that, that, that one sin of just, just ignoring the truth and suppressing the truth and, and not submitting to the truth now has evolved to what we see in verse 28. And following, look what this says. Since they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what, not, what ought not to be done. They have become filled now with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips and slanderers and God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know that God's righteous decrees 
that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. One sin tends to lead to another sin. But here's the good news of the gospel. And this is where I want us to focus in today. I want us to see the danger of sin, see the devastation of sin, to see the distance that sin puts in between us and God. But I also want you to hear the good news of the gospel. It's actually great news of the gospel. And that is this, that God pursues us in our sin. That's the gospel, is that even in our sinfulness, God comes to us. Even in our sinfulness, God seeks us out. He comes for us. From the time of Adam till the time of now, till the end of time, God pursues sinners. He comes for us. He pursues us through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now again, conviction is never fun, but it's necessary if we are to be in right relationship with God. Maybe right now, this morning, you feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your life about something that maybe nobody else even knows about. You've sinned, you've done something that's not right, whether it's big, whether it's little, doesn't matter, but but there's something in your heart that doesn't belong, and right now the Holy Spirit's convicting you, and you're just like, oh, it's not fun. But it's necessary if we're going to restore this damaged relationship with God. So instead of God just leaving us alone in our sins, instead of us, him leaving us isolated and fearful and lost, filled with guilt and filled with shame, God comes to us. He pursues us. That's the message of the cross, is that God loved us too much to leave us to ourselves. God loved us too much to leave us dead in our sins. The, the message of the gospel is that God loved us too much to just leave us alone. He pursues us and he comes after us. And so through the Holy Spirit, he brings conviction of sin in order that we might repent and in order that we might be restored into a right relationship with him. Again, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is God's invitation to experience his grace. What happens in my life, and I don't know about yours, I can't speak for you, but what happens in my life is that when the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin, I wish I could say immediately, I fall to my knees, I repent, and I restore things back to God. But a lot of times what happens instead is that I resist that correction. I resist that conviction. I resist it by trying to cover up my sin and pretend that it didn't happen. I resist it sometimes by making excuses for my sin. Well, Lord, I, I, I didn't have a choice. I, I just, I was in a bind. I didn't have a way out of that. Sometimes I resist it by blaming others for my sin. And sometimes I resist it, the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but it's trying to minimize my sin. Lord, I, I know that probably wasn't right. But man, at least I didn't do what somebody else did. At least I'm not as bad as them. But instead of letting pride rule our hearts, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to rule our hearts. Instead of resisting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, what we ought to do is to submit to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need to agree with him that what he is pointing out is truth and it's correct. And it's a violation, a departure from God's plan. That agreeing with God is what we call confession. 
That's what the word confess means, to agree with. God says, hey, you, you missed it here. And confession is not telling God something that God doesn't already know. Confession is saying, Lord, you are absolutely right. What you're saying, what you're speaking is, is true. I violated your command. I have departed from your will. I've stepped outside of what you have for me. I have sinned. I agree. Some folks think that the confession is telling God something that he doesn't know. There's nothing that he doesn't know. You're not going to come to God and say, okay, God, let me, I've got to tell you something. I know you probably don't know this, but I, I've just got to, I've got to come clean. I've got to tell you. And God goes, ah, man, I didn't see that one. We would never confess if the Holy Spirit didn't convict. So the Holy Spirit says, you're guilty. You, you, you've done this. And we confess and say, you're right. I did. That's confession. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, what? He is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and, and purify us from all the unrighteousness. So, so here's what happens. We, we step out of line. The Holy Spirit does his work of convicting our heart. If our hearts have not grown so hard, if our ears have not grown so dull, if our eyes have not grown so blind, we hear that convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And then at that moment, we get the opportunity to confess, to agree with the Holy Spirit that we have departed from God's will. And and at that moment, at that moment, we can come back to God. And it doesn't have to go any farther, any deeper, any worse. We can come back to God and say, God, you are right, I've departed, and that's not what I want to do. That's not how I want to live. And we can come back to the Lord immediately. But the opposite is true. When we refuse to confess, we refuse to admit. You know what you're actually doing when you refuse to confess? You're arguing with God. God says, hey, you stepped out of line, you've sinned, you violated my will, and you go, no, no, I will not admit to that. No, I'm going to cover it, I'm going to excuse it, I'm going to blame, I'm going to do whatever, I'm not going to admit that I've done this, and you're arguing with God because he's convicting you, and you're going, no, 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 I'm not agreeing with that. So we don't want to do that, we don't want to, to do that, we don't want to refuse to confess Because when we do that, we're arguing with God, we're missing out on his grace, and we are remaining separated from the relationship that we could be enjoying with the Lord. We can't move forward with God until we're willing to be broken over our sin. David says that what God requires of us is not great sacrifice, but a broken and contrite spirit. A spirit who says, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. And when I depart, I want you to convict me, Lord, so that I'll be broken over that sin and I can come back. That I can love you more than I love that sin. That I can pursue you, God, more than I can pursue the desires of my flesh. Do you know why God points out our sin? It's not to add guilt to our lives. It's not to condemn us. It's so that we can begin 
to put those sins to death. God doesn't just say, you're a sinner. And you go, okay, God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. But God says, you have sinned. And, and here's the sin. And this is how that sin grieves my heart. And this is how that sin puts distance between us. And you go, God, look, that sin, whatever it is, that's not more important to me than my relationship with you. I want to put that sin aside and I want to pursue you. That's why he's specific when the Holy Spirit convicts us. He is specific about our sins so that we can deal with those sins and we can begin to move beyond those sins. Now I want to be clear that we can't move forward until we're broken over our sinfulness. Not just our big sins, but, but all sin. Not just our, our public sin that people find out about and know about, but our private sin that nobody else may know about. Not just the outward sins that come out of my mouth or, or through my hands or through my eyes, but those inward sins like pride and arrogance and things like that. We need to be broken over those sins. That's why we need the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Anybody that knows you well could point out your big sins, your public sins, your outward sins. Anybody that lives with you, anybody that knows you could point those sins out. If they're close enough to you, they can see those things. But only the Holy Spirit can point out the private sins. Only the Holy Spirit can point out those inward sins. Only the Holy Spirit can, can, can deal with the things that man can't see. And that's why he's there, the small, private, inner sins. Because whether it's big or small, whether it's public or private, whether it's inward or outward, all sin separates us from God. And it damages our relationship to God and to others. So if we're serious about growing in Christ, if we're serious about experiencing him in all of his fullness and enjoying this, this abundant relationship that Jesus has for us, Jesus said, I came to, to give you life and to give you life more abundant. If that's what we want to experience, and if we're serious about doing that, we, we must not just submit to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, not just to submit to it when he convicts us, but I think we need to go a step farther. And I think that we need to seek out, to seek out the opportunities for the Holy Spirit to explore every area of our lives. To search us, to know us, to try us, and to see what he sees inside of us. King David was described by God as a man after God's own heart. He wasn't described that way because he was perfect. David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. At times he could be wicked and ruthless. And, and, and I want you to know this, that, that David's sin with Bathsheba wasn't something he did on Monday and confessed on Tuesday. David's sin with Bathsheba and... It was long after the child was born. 
that Nathan confronted David and David repented. David lived with that guilt and that separation for months, if not years, before God exposed it and called him back. But David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because David had a deep desire to be holy and to be right with God. In Psalm 139, the passage I want us to close with today, Psalm 139, David is being real, he's being honest, he's just pulling everything back and giving God full access to his life. I want us to look at the beginning of this chapter and the end of this chapter. You do well to read the whole chapter, but he starts off by claiming the truth that he understood, that God knew David far better than David knew himself. Listen to what he says. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. He's saying, God, you know me better than I know myself. You know the good, the bad, the ugly. You know the desire I have for a relationship with you, but you know this, this flesh that I give into again and again. You know me, God. You know me. So there's no reason to pretend. But not only does he say, God, you know me, but then he says, God, I want you to help me to know me. Verses 23 and 24, that same chapter. He says, search me, O God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let me point out something about this that that maybe you haven't considered before. Psalm 139 is not David praying about the big sin, about the public sin, about his outward sins. That's Psalm 51. Psalm 139 is David saying, God, there's probably stuff inside of me that I don't even see. Stuff inside of me that, 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 that is dangerous and deadly that, that I don't even recognize. So God, I need you to search it out. I need you to find what's deep inside of me. I need you to help me to, to be really clean. Not just of the outward stuff, but God of the inward stuff. I need you to search me. This is not a psalm about the outward things that the world can see. This is about the inward stuff that only God can see. And so he starts by saying, God, you know me better than I know myself. So would you come and would you search me? Look what he says. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And if there is any, any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. David's saying, Lord, let's let's be real. It's about the stuff that nobody else could see. 
This, this is a psalm for those who desire intimacy with God at the deepest level. Who, who will invite, and, and not just invite, but celebrate the uncomfortable conviction of the Holy Spirit because they understand that it produces godliness in them. Some would say, why in the world would you invite God to, to probe deep with inside of us? Why in the world? Isn't that taking sin too serious? And my response would be, for those who don't, I think they take sin way too lightly. I don't think we can take sin too serious. And I think if we want this intimacy with God, we're going to have to say, Lord, look, I'm, I'm going to pull back the curtains. I'm going to open up every room of my life. And I'm going to let you go through it with a fine-tooth comb. And if there's anything in there that's offensive to you, then God, it's got to go so that you can come. It's got to go so that you can live free in me. Let me ask you this morning, how serious do you take your sin? I don't mean do you beat yourself up over sin because that's not God's process. I'm not saying you walk around with this huge guilt complex because of something you did 20 years ago. That's not God's plan. I'm saying when you sin and you step outside of God's will and the Holy Spirit convicts you, how serious do you take the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? How serious do you take it when God says, hey, that's not the man I created you to be. That's not the way I intended for you to respond. That's not the way that I want you to love your, your spouse or your child. How serious do you take the convicting work of the Holy Spirit when he puts his finger on your sin? Maybe that question could be answered with another question. How long has it been since you pleaded for God to search you, to know you, and to show you what he sees when he looks down deep inside of you. Because if we take our sins serious, we're not just going to, to try to respond when, when guilt gets the best of us. But we're going to say, Lord, search, know me, show me, so that I can be right with you. Don't resist or fear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's God's instrument to lead you to his grace. It's, it's, it's God's invitation for you to come back to him and to experience him in all of his fullness. If we're ever going to be what God intends for us to be, it begins with conviction. It proceeds through confession. And it's going to, to involve Repentance, which we'll talk about next week. What repentance, what true repentance really looks like. But we'll never have the intimacy if we're not willing to listen to his voice, to agree that he is speaking truth, to have our hearts broken because we've sinned and we've grieved the, the heart of God, and then to come back to him in full repentance. Confession and repentance are the gateways to grace. And to resist them is to resist grace. And when we resist grace, we go deeper and deeper into sin. So I encourage you this morning not to fear conviction. It's not fun. But it's necessary 
to bring us back into right relationship with God. So don't fear it, but, but celebrate it. And celebrate the fact that God loves you enough to come to you, to point out your faults, and then to provide the sacrifice needed to make that right. That's the gospel. And that's the good news. And, and I would say this to you. Don't be afraid of conviction, but be afraid if you can sin and you're not convicted. If you can sin, if I can sin and not feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, something has gone wrong. My heart's so hard, my ears are so dull, my eyes are so blind that I no longer see or hear or feel. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Let's close today by asking the Lord to search us. To know everything about us. Our rising up, our sitting down. Our our words before they leave our mouths. And to show us what he sees so that we can repent. We can change our heart and we can watch God restore this relationship with him. Let's pray.